So now we're going to keep reading um, malaria, stopping a global killer. And remember that we are reading to determine and figure out what happens as the text structure is changing. As we were reading before, we realized that um, it was talking all about the remedy. And that section began on page 14 at around line 295. And as we are reading this section right here, we're hearing about all of the different remedies and the different things that were happening about the global eradication efforts. And as we turn to page 17, I want you to notice something that happens. But. Anytime you see that, it means that they're about to make a huge shift. So all of this stuff that we've been reading about the remedy sounds wonderful, but we have a problem here that is going to change everything that has been happening so far. I'm reading on page 17 at the top. So let's find out what has been happening with these efforts. But it was also clear that the campaign was far too ambitious. In much of the deep tropics, malaria persisted stubbornly. Financing for the effort eventually withered, and the eradication program was abandoned in 1969. I would have been too. In many nations, this coincided with a decrease in foreign aid with political instability and burgeoning poverty, and with the overburdened and with overburdened public health services. So people are suffering in all kinds of ways. In several places where malaria had been on the brink of extinction, including both Sri Lanka and India, the disease came roaring back. And in much of sub-Saharan Africa, malaria eradication never really got started. The WHO program largely bypassed the continent, and smaller-scale efforts made little headway. So it's falling apart. Soon after the program collapsed, mosquito control lost access to its crucial tool, DDT. The problem was overuse not by malaria fighters, but by farmers, especially cotton growers, trying to protect their crops. The spray was so cheap that many times the necessary doses were sometimes, many it was so cheap that many times the necessary doses were sometimes applied. Now, what I want you to notice that I did there is the prosody or the way I was phrasing it didn't make sense with the way I read it. So I had to change the emphasis of what I was saying. You find that a lot in, in uh, as you begin reading more and more complex texts that the way they put their sentences together, you, you're reading it, but then as it comes out of your mouth, you realize it doesn't make as much sense. Um, the other thing that's really interesting um, the people in our area, the Panhandle area, they're the, they were the cotton farmers that were doing this. It was our people. And since my family were migrant farm workers that picked that cotton, they had the DDT on them. Mm. 
Mm, well, maybe not. It's 1969. They weren't doing that then. So the spray was so cheap that many times, that many times the necessary doses were so, sometimes applied. The insecticide accumulated in the soil and tainted water courses. Though non-toxic to humans, DDT harmed peregrine falcons, sea lions, and salmon. In 1962, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, documenting this abuse and painting so damning a picture that the chemical was eventually outlawed by most of the world for agricultural use. Um, our, even our bald eagle, our national bird, was endangered at that time also because it, it made the uh, shells so fragile that they weren't hatching nearly as many as they could have been. Exceptions were made for malaria control, but DDT became nearly impossible to procure. The ban on DDT says gods of the National Institutes of Health may have killed 20 million children. So now we have then. This word right here is talking about all of these things that were happening that really were damaging to the fight for malaria. Then came the biggest crisis of all, widespread drug resistance. Malaria parasites reproduce so quickly that they evolve on fast forward, constantly spinning out new mutations. Some mutations protected the parasites from chloroquinine. The trait was swiftly passed to the next generation of parasites, and with each new exposure to chloroquine, I wonder if I'm pronouncing this word right, Chloro, quote, chloroquine, the drug-resistant parasites multiplied. Soon they were unleashing large-scale malaria epidemics for which treatment could be exceedingly difficult. By the 1990s, Malaria, malaria afflicted a greater number of people and was harder to cure than ever. The story of malaria is currently being written by hand in ballpoint pen by the staff of Zambia's Colleen Mission Hospital. Every morning, soon after dawn, a nurse's aide who has just finished the night shift records a brief update on each child in the intensive care ward. The report is written on lined notebook paper and clipped into a weathered three-ring binder. The day workers add frequent notations on the small patient cards kept at the nurse's station. Together, the night report and the cards from a compelling immediate account of, of a deadly disease. So we've kind of switched over here to a new section. So what we are entering is kind of changes with the part where it says the story of malaria. So it kind of returns to a new part to talk about how is this effort going to continue. And I'm looking and scanning over. I see that in the next page it says, finally, the entries turn hopeful. So we're going to be reading about these entries and how, what they're finding about how to confront the disease. 
Many entries are simply terse, staccato jottings. Mary has malaria, unconscious. Belinda, malaria, seizures. But others are far longer, enumerating clinical details about medicines and dosages and checkup times, as well as offering vivid glimpses into the struggle for survival in one of the world's most malarious places. Leaf the pages, flip through the cards. There are thousands upon thousands of entries, and the stories emerge. Here's methylene kumafumbo, a skinny three-year-old. So now we're switching again. Now we're going to hear some stories about what is in these documents that are going to really become the research journey of how malaria is combated. A skinny three-year-old who is taken to Kayleen Hospital by her grandmother. They journeyed 10 miles from their home village, and by the time they arrived, malaria parasites had already latched onto methylene's brain. Admitted yesterday, the night report reads, fevers and seizures, malaria. The right side of methylene's head was shaved and an IV line inserted. Quinine which remains Kayleen's hospital's frontline drug for severe cases, was administered dose after dose, each treatment dutifully recorded. For almost a week, methylene languished in a coma. A malarial coma can be a horrible thing to observe. Arched back, rigid arms, twisted hands, pointed toes, a still life of agony. Remember, she's three. The reports continue their unblinking assessments. Unconscious continues on IV quinine. Still unconscious, though not seizuring. Still unconscious. Then the seizure started again. There are times when the night report reads almost like a personal diary. I was worried, the aide wrote about methylene, so I informed sister the honorific bestowed on the hospital's two nurses, who came and ordered Valium, which was given with relief. Finally, the entries turn hopeful. She's opening up her eyes, but she still looks cerebral. Drinking and eating porridge, and then is conscious and talking. Three days later, Methylene is released from the hospital. Looking bright, says the report but still not walking well. One insidious thing about malaria is that many who don't die end up scarred for life. Her walking issues point to larger problems, Robert Gotts says after reviewing the progression of methylene sickness. She may have permanent neurological damage. This legacy of malaria has sobering repercussions for people and nations. It's possible, said Gotts, that due to malaria, almost every child in Africa is in some way neurologically scarred. And methylene has to be considered one of the fortunate ones. The Kayleen Hospital night report is filled with heartbreak. Christabel, the patient is in bad condition, grunting and weary, irregular breathing. Sister was informed midnight she collapsed and died. The body was taken home. May her soul rest in peace.
There is an entry like this on nearly every page. Ronaldo, semi-conscious, IV for quinine, seizure, Valium, pain suppository, fever, more pain suppository. At 0500 hours, child had gasping respiration. Finally, child collapsed and died. His body was taken home. All of Zambia, it seems, from the army to the Boy Scouts to local theater troops, has been mobilized to stop malaria. So it sounds like to me we're moving into a new section here. This is moving from those elements that we were talking about with the entries about the research and moving into another section about how Zambia is going to respond. So I'm just going to change my sticky note here from where we were talking about entries, right? Around line 420 of page 18. And now on page 21, we're moving into a new situation. Zambia's response. You know, sometimes I think that we would expect an article to have a lot of these subtitles or whatever on on it to help us read better, but sometimes they don't have that in there and we have to be making these decisions on our own. All of Zambia, it seems, from the army to the Boy Scouts to the local theater troops has been mobilized to stop malaria. In 1985, the nation's malaria control budget was $30,000. Now, supported with international grant money, it's more than $40 million. That's another one of those startling statistics that we need to pay attention to because it's really showing the depth of the response and the severity of what was required to solve this difficult problem. Now, uh, supported is the 40 billion, right? Um, posters have been hung throughout the country informing people of malaria's causes and symptoms and stressing the importance of medical intervention, so an education program. The vast majority of the nation's malaria cases are never treated by professionals. There are even Boy Scout merit badges for knowledge about malaria. Zambia's plan is to educate the public, then beat the disease through a three-pronged assault. Ah, so here we have their response. Drugs, sprays, and mosquito nets. The country has dedicated itself to dispensing the newest malaria cure, which also happens to be based on one of the oldest, an herbal medicine derived from a weed related to sagebrush, sweet wormwood called Artemisia. This treatment was first described in a Chinese medical text written in the 4th century A.D., but seems to have been overlooked by the rest of the world until now. So we're kind of moving into a new response and a sub-response under here because we've got those three things, drug sprays and mosquito necks. So now the author is going into more detail about that first one, this drug. The new version, artemisinin, is as powerful as quinine with few side effects. It's the last remaining surefire malaria cure. 
Other drugs can still play a role in treatment, but the parasites have developed resistance to all of them, including quinine itself. I'm wondering if it's by now um, developed a um, resistance to this one. To help reduce the odds that a mutation will also disarm artemisinin, derivatives of the drug are mixed with other compounds in an anti-malaria barrage known as artemisinin-based combination therapy, or ACT. So that answers our question. So they don't get completely used to it. They're mixing it with other kinds of drugs too. Zambia is also purchasing enough insecticide to spray every house in several of the most malarious areas every year just before the rainy season. So again, based on page 21, now the author is going into detail about sprays. It has already returned to DDT, though just for indoor use in controlled quantities. In the face of the growing malaria toll, access to DDT is gradually becoming easier, and even the Sierra Club does not oppose limited spraying for malaria control. Finally, the Zambian government is distributing an insecticide-treated bed nets, there's your third one, the nets, to ward off mosquitoes during the night when the malaria-carrying anopheles are almost always bite. The plan sounds straightforward, but progress against malaria never comes easily. Many Zambians living far from hospitals depend on roadside stalls for medicine. There, ACT can cost more than a dollar a dose, virtually unaffordable in a country where more than 70% of the population survives on less than a dollar a day. So there's no way they could afford that. And we moved into kind of another section, I think, is at this point, they've given us some solutions, but I'm going to add another sticky note in here. Complications, because it's telling us some reasons why this is uh, not working so well. So people buy other drugs for as little as 15 cents. They provide temporary release, reducing the malarial fever, but may do little to halt the parasites. Then there are widespread traditional beliefs. So here you have another one, another reason that it's difficult for this process to work well. One of the posters plastered across Zambia reads, malaria is not transmitted by witchcraft, drinking dirty water, getting soaked in rain, or chewing immature sugarcane. When children suffer from seizures, a symptom of advanced cerebral malaria, some people interpret as a hex and head straight to a traditional healer. By the time they make it to the hospital, it's too late. Even the gift of a bed net can backfire. There's no question that the nets can save lives, especially the latest types with are impregnated with insecticide. But first they need to reach the people most in need, and then they must be properly used. Reminds me of what's happening with our mask mentality right now. Distributing nets to remote villages is a nightmare, says Malama Meluba, an executive director of the nonprofit Zambia Malaria Foundation. 
it's one thing for me to convince Bill and Melinda Gates to donate money. It's quite another to actually get the nets out. The Zombian army hasn't been employed to help, but even after delivery, people can be reluctant to sleep beneath nets, which make a hot and stuffy part of the world feel hotter and stuffier. If a leg pops out at night or the fabric is torn, mosquitoes, mosquitoes can still reach the skin. And the nets are sometimes misused as fishing gear. Theater troops are spreading out into the Zambian countryside, emphasizing the proper use of bed nets through stage productions in settlements, large and small. Despite the difficulties, Zambia's campaign has started to produce results. So now we've got a new section starting here about something maybe that's positive. So I'm going to put a new sticky because that's a new situation. Um, I'm just going to put hopeful right here on my sticky note. Um, in 2000, a study showed that fewer than 2% of children under the age of five slept under insecticide-treated bed net. Six years later, the number had risen to 23%. The government of Zambia says an ACT known as Coartum is now available cost-free to the entire population. In a country that was steadily losing 50,000 children a year to malaria, early indications are that the death rate has already been reduced by more than a third. But what if the donor money dries up? What if Zambia's economy collapses? What about political instability? Both Angola and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which flank Zambia, have a history of war. <laughs> so much for our hopes, right? In the 1970s, during a civil war in Angola, six bombs landed near the Kaline Mission Hospital. In the Congo war years, some of the nearby roads were mined. This is a critical moment, says Kent Campbell, Program Director of the Malaria Control and Evaluation Partnership in Africa. There are no national models of success with malaria control in Africa. None. All we've seen is pessimism and failure. If Zambia is a success, it will have a domino effect. If it's a failure, donors will be discouraged and move on and the problem will continue to get worse. No matter how much time, money, and energy are expended on the effort, there still remains the most implacable of foes, biology itself. ACTs are potent, but malaria experts fear that resistance may eventually develop, depriving doctors of their best tool. Before the ban on DDT, there were already scattered reports of Anopheles mosquitoes resistant to the insecticide. With its return, there are sure to be more. Meanwhile, global warming may be allowing the insects to colonize at higher altitudes and farther latitudes. Drug, drugs, sprays, and nets, it appears, will never be more than part of the solution. What's required is an even more decisive weapon. When I look at the whole malaria situation, says Lewis Miller, co-chief of the malaria unit at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, it all seems to come down to one basic idea. We 
need a sure, we sure need a vaccine. <laughs> wow. Okay, so this seems to be a new section. I'm just going to write out here vaccine to the side on my sticky note. And I'm going to go back and put a question mark next to my hopeful one from the previous page because I really wasn't hopeful for very long. It's easy to list every vaccine that can prevent a parasitic disease in humans. There is none. Vaccines exist for bacteria and viruses, but these are completely, comparatively simple organisms. The polio virus, for example, consists of a lack exactly 11 genes. Plasmodium falciparum has more than 5,000. It's this complexity. See, again, it's that startling comparison with the, that contrast with 11 versus 5,000. Got to pay attention to those. It's this complexity combined with the malaria parasite's constant motion, dodging like a fugitive from the mosquito to the human bloodstream to the liver to the red blood cells that makes the vaccine fiendishly difficult to design. Ideally, a malaria vaccine would provide the lifelong protection. A lull in malaria transmission could cause many people to lose any immunity they have built up against the disease, even adults. Immunologically speaking, could revert to infant status, rendering it more devastating if it returned. This is why a partial victory over malaria could be worse than a total failure. Falciparum also has countless substrains. Each river valley seems to have its own type, and a vaccine to block them all <laughs> has to block them all. And of course, the vaccine can leave no opening for the parasite to develop resistance. Creating a malaria vaccine is one of the most ambitious medical quests of all times. Recent malaria history is fraught with grand pronouncements that turned out to be baseless. Malaria vaccine is near, announced a New York Times headline in 1984. This is the last major hurdle, said one U.S. scientist quoted in the article. There is no question now that we will have a vaccine. The rest is fine-tuning. Seven years of fine-tuning later, another Times headline summarized the result. Efforts to fight malaria appear to have failed. In the late 1990s, Colombian immunologist Manuel Patarroyo claimed with much media fanfare that he had found the answer to malaria with his vaccine, SPF 66. Early results were tantalizing, but follow-up studies in Thailand showed it worked no better than a placebo. At least 90 teams around the world are now working on some aspect of a vaccine. The British government, by way of incentive, has pledged to help purchase hundreds of millions of doses of any successful vaccine for donation to countries in need. The one closest to public release, developed by the pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline Biologicals in collaboration with the U.S. Army, is called RTSS. In a recent trial in Mozambique, it protected about half the inoculated children from severe malaria 
for more than a year. 50% in bad RTSS might save hundreds of thousands of lives, but it's not the magic bullet that would neutralize the disease once and for all. Many researchers suspect an all-encompassing cure isn't possible. Malaria has always afflicted us, they say, and always will. There is one man, however, who not only believes in malaria can be defeated, he thinks he knows the key. So this right here is a transition to our next step. So I'm going to add a new sticky. And I'm just going to write the key. Stephen Hoffman is the founder and CEO of the only company in the world dedicated to solely finding a malaria vaccine. The company's name is Scenaria, that is, healthy air, the opposite of malaria. Hoffman is 58, lean and green-eyed with a demeanor of single-minded intensity. He's impassioned and impatient and intolerant of negativity, is how one colleague describes him. So now we're going kind of into a description of him and where his work is headed. Hoffman is intimately familiar with the pitfalls of the vaccine cunt. During his 14-year tenure as director of the malaria program at the Naval Medical Research Center, he was part of the team working on the vaccine promised in the 1984 New York Times article. He was so confident in the vaccine that he tested it on himself. He exposed himself to infected mosquitoes, then flew to a medical conference in California to deliver what he thought would be a triumphant presentation. The morning after he landed, he was already shaking and feverish, and soon enough, suffering from full-blown malaria. Now, more than two decades later, Hoffman is ready to return to prominence. He couldn't have found a more uninspiring launchpad. Scenario is headquartered in a dismal mini-mall in a suburban Maryland near a picture-framing shop and a discount office supply store. From outside, there's no mention of the company's mission. A window badly in need of washing bears the company name in tiny adhesive letters. Hoffman realizes it's probably best if the office supply customers aren't fully aware of what's going on a few doors away. Inside, generating a hubbub of activity, are some 30 scientists from across the globe. The lab's centerpiece is a room where Hoffman raises mosquitoes infected with the falciparum parasite. Yes, in a quiet mini mall. Hoffman claims it's the world's most secure insectary. To enter, a visitor must pass through multiple antechambers that are sealed between sets of doors, like a lock system in a canal. Everyone has to wear white cotton overlays, masks, shoe covers, and gloves. White makes it easier to see a stray mosquito. The air is recirculated, and the insectary is checked daily for leaks. Signs abound, warning, warning, infectious agent in use. And hanging on a wall is a time-honored last line of defense, a fly swatter.
The mosquitoes are housed in a few dozen cylindrical containers about the size of beach buckets covered with mesh lids. So we're still talking about this key that Hoffman is looking for. They're fed falciparum infected blood, then stored for two weeks while the parasites propagate in the insect's guts and migrate to the salivary glands, creating what are known as loaded mosquitoes, like loading a gun. The loaded insects are transferred carefully to a kiln-like irradiator to be zapped with a quick dose of radiation. Then, in a special dissecting lab, the salivary glands of the mosquitoes are removed. Each mosquito's glands contain more than 100,000 parasites. Essentially, the vaccine consists of these irradiated parasites packed into a hypodermic needle. The idea is based on research done in the late 1960s at a New York university by Ruth Nussenswig, who demonstrated that parasites weakened by radiation can prompt an immune response in mice without causing malaria. Hoffman's vaccine will deliver a wallop of a thousand mosquito bites and, he says, produce a complete protective response. Thereafter, anytime the vaccinated person is bitten by a malaria-carrying mosquito, the body, already in a state of alert, will not allow the disease to take hold. Hoffman's lofty goal is to eventually immunize 20, all 25 million infants born in sub-Saharan Africa every year. He believes that at least 90% of them will be protected completely from malaria. If so, they'll be the first generation of Africans in all of human history not to suffer from the disease. But which generation will it be? Although Scenario's vaccine may undergo initial field testing next year, a federally approved version won't be available for at least five years, and maybe never. Given the track record of malaria vaccine, that's a distinct possibility. And after so many million years on Earth and so many victories over humanity, the disease, it is certain, will not surrender easily. So we're moving into the conclusion of the article. When it comes to malaria, only one thing is guaranteed. Every evening in the rainy season across much of the world, I'm writing conclusion on my sticky note. Every evening in the rainy season across much of the world, Anopheles mosquitoes will take wing, alert to the odors and warmth of living bodies. A female Anopheles needs to drink blood every three days. In a single feeding, which lasts as long as 10 minutes, she can ingest about two and a half times her pre-meal weight. In human terms, the equivalent of downing a bathtub-sized milkshake. If she happens to feed on a person infected with malaria, parasites will accompany the blood. Two weeks later, when the mosquito flies through the open window of a mud hut seeking the next meal, she'll be loaded. Inside the hut, the child is sleeping with her sister and parents on a blanket spread over the floor. The family is aware of the malaria threat, 
They know the rainy season's dangers. They've hung a bed net from the ceiling. But it's a steamy night, and the child has tossed and turned a few times before dropping back to sleep. Her foot is sticking out of the net. The mosquito senses it and dips down for a silent landing. And if you remember how we began on line four, it begins with a bite, the painless bite.